morning. <clears throat> Turn to Mark chapter 10. If you have your Bibles with you or a device with the Bible on it, if you don't, that's okay. We put the passages on the screen to help you follow along. Continue to walk through the Gospel of Mark. We've been here since uh, February. We'll be here through uh, early next summer and uh, settling deep in this first written account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the Gospel of Mark. Um, not written in a way where we know every single detail of his life, but is written as a letter to believers as a proclamation of who Christ is, what Christ has come to do. And so we've seen through the first nine and a half chapters, uh, uh, Jesus do many, many amazing things, blow our minds left and right, and all those teachings are available on our, our website. But uh, as we come to chapter 10, we've seen Jesus... Um, shift his ministry. It actually happened in chapter 8. Shift his ministry from going far and wide to as many people as possible to, to now he's headed to Jerusalem. He's headed to the cross, which is going to be our fo- has been our focus throughout, but really going to be our focus all the way through Easter. And uh, in chapter 10, he's taught his disciples as he's focused more on his disciples. He's taught them his high view of marriage, what God intended in marriage to be between a man and a woman for uh, until they both shall, as long as they both shall live. And and then last week we walked through a passage of um, uh, how as disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, our heart, our attitude should be that as of a child, humble and teachable and dependent on God. And uh, today Jesus is confronted with a man who's actually the exact opposite of that. He, he's, he's not coming as a child. He's coming as one who's done much and wants Jesus to recognize that. And we'll see in this encounter today in the subsequent conversation with his disciples a that the gospel's on display in exposing idols, providing the power of salvation, and bringing immeasurable treasure into our life. So let's begin with idols being exposed. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Father, we are grateful for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it for all these years so that what we study and read and and digest today is, is the word of God. It brings life, it brings salvation, it brings hope, it brings comfort, it brings the very character and nature of God into our lives as you empower it by your spirit. And so, Spirit, we pray you would come now and do this good work in us. We need it. We long for it. Even if we don't realize we long for it, we do. And bring life, bring hope, and bring joy, and bring salvation today. For the glory of the name of Jesus alone, we pray in his name. Amen. This man has traditionally been called the rich young ruler, and we know from this account that Um, He was wealthy, he had great possessions. We know from the account of this story in Matthew and Luke that he was also a ruler of some sort, he had power, and he was also uh, young, a young guy. 
And uh, he comes and asks Jesus this question that, frankly, if you're a pastor, if you're a preacher, or even if you're just a Christian, like this is the greatest question in the world to get from somebody. What does it take to have inherit, inherit eternal life? What does it take to become a believer, a follower of Jesus? What does it take for salvation? Now, like we have people in our life that we're longing for them to come and ask a question like this. People we're praying for, people we're, we're in life with, we're doing relationship with. Like we, if they came up and asked us this question, we would be thrilled to death. We'd be so excited. Well, let, let me tell you what it takes. Here's how you know Jesus. Here's how you inherit eternal life. And so Jesus responds by walking this man through the gospel and leading him to become a follower of Jesus. Like, that's what we expect he would do. That's what we would want to do and be able to do. Like, hasn't Jesus been to seminary? Doesn't he know how to lead somebody through the gospel? Doesn't he know the Roman road or steps of salvation or, or whatever method you want to use? Like, what, how, if, it, if it wasn't Jesus, we would think this man just failed at sharing the gospel. Like, many people in this room could have led this man to a salvation decision because we know the, the, the truths of the gospel and could present it in a way that would cause him to believe or, or at least profess belief. But Jesus doesn't. And it's actually because it's Jesus that we know that he's after something more in this man. It's, it's because it's Jesus who knows what is in the heart of man, according to John 2.25. And so knowing this man, he knows that this man doesn't just need simply an answer to his question so he can check another box in his life. He needs his heart to be exposed. And so Jesus responds with the question and his statement. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God. So do you believe I'm God? Because you call me good and only God is good. Because if you believe I'm God, then that changes this whole conversation. Or do you think I'm just another man and you're flattering me or giving me a compliment because you've heard about me? In that case, I'm just another man with another opinion. And so what is it? And then Jesus gives him a list of commandments drawn essentially from the Ten Commandments. Now, a little bit of background of the Ten Commandments, in case you haven't seen Prince of Egypt, given by God to Moses after Moses led the people of God out of Egypt. The people of God gathered at Mount Sinai, and there God instituted this covenant relationship with them. At Mount Sinai is really when they became a nation. And on Mount Sinai, he revealed to them his commands, his laws. Here's what I expect out of you. Here's how you live as my people in the land that I'm sending you, the land I promised you. And here's how you relate to me as my people and I'm your God. And the foundation of that law giving that you read about in the, the book of Exodus and Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the foundation of that is the Ten Commandments. Now the Ten Commandments, I have a slide with them up there. The only thing I really want to draw your attention to about them was the fact that, that the commands Jesus referred to were drawn from what's called the second table. Commandments 5 through 10. These commands are generally referred to as commands related uh, to our relationship with fellow man. So honor your father and mother. Do not steal. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Don't covet. Don't lie. Um, and so basically Jesus, in, in, in saying these commands, the second table of commands, he's asking, how have you treated other people? And the rich young ruler responds, I've, I've kept these commands since my youth. I've done well in treating other people. Notice Jesus doesn't refute his claim. Jesus doesn't treat him like a hypocrite. Like, yeah, right, whatever. Nobody's obeyed these commands perfectly. He doesn't treat him like someone who hasn't obeyed these commands. He, he doesn't treat him like a hypocrite. We know how Jesus treats hypocrites throughout the Gospels. 
So, so understand what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite, uh, language drawn from the Greek theater, who, someone who puts on a mask, someone who pretends to be somebody else. A hypocrite is someone who intentionally tries to deceive. Here's who I am to you, but I'm a completely different person over here to these people. I'll put on a mask and I, I play a different role. And Jesus with hypocrites is brutal. Brutal, tough, hard, crushing. A hypocrite is not someone who's trying to do the right thing but fails, because that's all of us, right? And so Jesus doesn't treat him like a hypocrite. He, he takes him at face value. He acts as though his claims to obey the commands were valid, like Paul in Philippians 3, who claimed to be blameless in regards to the law. This man may well have lived a very upstanding, morally good, righteous life, outwardly. Outwardly moral and upstanding and righteous, obeys the laws, uh, married and faithful to his wife, works hard at his job, loves his kids, pays his taxes, never been arrested or caught in a scandal. He's not making an outlandish claim to perfection, but outwardly, I've been a pretty good guy. And the text is interesting. It says, Jesus looks at him and then loves him. The language for looking at him implies and and gives this idea of scrutiny. He looks at him with intensity. Jesus is examining him, checking him out thoroughly. And the result of that was he loved him. Jesus loved him. God in the flesh loved a man who was a sinner who would end up rejecting the gospel and walking away from salvation. Jesus loved him. Jesus loved a sinner, and because of his love, he did not make it easier to enter the kingdom. He made his entrance into the kingdom come down the same necessary path that it is for all men and women who hear the gospel, a path of repentance, repentance of sin and trusting in Jesus. The problem with this man is he couldn't repent of sin if you couldn't see his sin. And so Jesus, in asking these questions, is drawing out his ability to see his own sin. And right now he can't see it. He's a good guy. He sees that Jesus is a good guy. He even has the love and affection of Jesus. And so Jesus helps him by asking him to do one thing. Jesus moves from the second table of commands to the first table, the first four commands of the Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with God. So you say you've treated others well, okay, then one thing you lack, sell all your possessions and give to the poor and come and follow me. And the text says a man walked away with great sorrow and distress and despair because he owned much. And as Jesus makes very plain here, he was owned by much. It's a very interesting request that Jesus makes. Not just sell your possessions, but sell them and give money to the poor But but not even just that, because if he sold everything he owned and gave money to the poor, then that's just another thing on his list. Look at how great I am. Sell everything you own, give the money to the poor, and come and follow me. Come and be my disciple. Jesus is making it plain to the man. You come and follow me, and I will replace all that you sold as your greatest treasure. I will be your treasure. All that you love, I will be that for you. As we'll see in a bit, he had the opportunity to swap temporary treasure for eternal treasure. But he couldn't. Because he loved his temporary treasure more. Which is what Jesus is revealing. 
Later in Mark, we get to this passage when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Mark 12. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the commandments and the law can be summed up in these two commands, love God and love others. The man claimed to love others and how he obeyed the law, but when confronted with an opportunity to demonstrate not only his love for others, but his love for God, he failed, thus revealing who he truly worshipped. Eternal life as defined by Jesus in John 17, 3 is this, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom, you, whom you've sent. Eternal life is not just where you go when you die. That, that is a part of it. Because when this body quits working or when Jesus returns, we're going to receive new bodies that will last forever. These don't. And in that new body, that resurrected body with an eternal soul that's been connected to God, we will dwell with God as his people forever. That is eternal life. But eternal life starts now when heaven comes to you. When you know God, you know his son, Jesus Christ, and you have this relationship with him. That's when eternal life begins. It's being uh, fulfilling what God has created us to do. Know Him, love Him, worship Him. This man could not have a loving relationship, eternal life, inherit eternal life because he loved his possessions more than he loved God. More than he loved his fellow man. He could not inherit eternal life because he worshipped and loved that which he owned. So he walked away sad. And guys, the amazing part of this, Jesus let him. Jesus let him walk away. He didn't chase him down. He didn't lessen the requirements. He didn't give him another way. He just let him walk away. And as far as we know, into a Christless eternity. This had to be shocking to the disciples watching this happen. How would, how, how would they... Um, have loved to add this wealthy young man to their fold. So Jesus looks at them and he, he takes their shock to another level, beginning in verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus is revealing here, as he does in several other passages, along with many other passages in the Bible, the spiritual danger that is inherent in being wealthy. The spiritual danger that's inherent in being wealthy. Jesus had just shown the disciples what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. Be like a child. Trusting, dependent, humble. The man revealed that wasn't him, and so he didn't inherit the kingdom. Jesus now reveals how difficult it is for anyone who is wealthy to enter the kingdom. And this amazed the disciples, and so Jesus makes a comparison that seems ridiculous, but solidifies his point. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is using hyperbole really in a comical way. Like, it's who would ever think of a camel going through a needle? And it sounds so ridiculous that scholars have tried to help Jesus out through the years. Surely a smart man like this would make such a ridiculous comparison. 
And so um, uh, one thing they tried to say is that the Greek word for rope is very close to the Greek word for camel. And so obviously this is a copyist error. When the New Testament was copied years after years after years, they just wrote down the wrong word. Obviously Jesus meant rope because that still makes a good point, but it's, it's still very hard for a rope to go through a needle. You have to unwind it and twine it, untwine it all the way down to the smallest thread. That was told to me by a New Testament professor at ULM when I took a religious class at ULM. Why I took a religious class at ULM, that's another story for another day, but I did. And this professor, former pastor, that's, that's, what, he, that's what he told me. That's what Jesus meant. He didn't really say camel. Or scholars through the years have tried to say that there was a, a gate in the wall of Jerusalem called the Needle Gate. And a man could walk through the gate, but it was so small if you had a camel loaded down with provisions, you'd have to strip the camel down of all its provisions. The camel would have to get on his knees to go through the needle gate. Why the camel doesn't walk around to a bigger gate, I don't know. But for whatever reason, they've got to go through this gate. And so it's a picture of humility and getting rid of all our baggage before we come to Christ. And, and, and that's what Jesus means by this. That's what a rich man has to do in order to come to Christ. The problem is, it's not true. There was a needle gate, but it was two or three hundred years after Christ and his ministry. And so that, that's not helpful. So just, just let the text speak. Let the Bible speak. Let it say what it says. And the, and the key to understanding this is the reaction of the disciples. After Jesus gave this analogy, they say, well, then who can be saved? It's impossible. The, the analogy makes sense. Putting a rope through a needle lies hard but not impossible if you unwind it. The camel crawling through the gate, even if it did exist at that time, is hard but not impossible. But a camel through the eye of a needle is impossible. That makes the best sense. It's impossible. Salvation, Jesus is saying, for a rich person is impossible. In fact, Mark extends this to everyone. He says in verse 24, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. For man on his own to enter the kingdom, as this rich young man just tried to do, is impossible, but very possible with God. The disciples just watched a man that by every understanding of the first century Jew should be a part of God's kingdom. He was wealthy, he was a ruler. In their worldview, if you were healthy, wealthy, prosperous, blessed, uh, young, all that kind of stuff, then you were favored by God. You were blessed by God if you have possessions and power and prominence. Obviously, you're doing the right thing and God has chosen to favor you, bless you. That's why you, you have all that. And so, of course, this kind of person would inherit the kingdom of God. If he didn't, then who else would? He, and not only that, he was morally upright. He kept the commands. And this man did not inherit eternal life. Jesus watched him walk away after he revealed the idolatry in his heart. Jesus turns that mentality on its head. Man's health, man's goodness, man's wealth, man's power amount to absolutely nothing when it comes to entering the kingdom of God. Is of no value. It does nothing to get, earn, or keep salvation. With man, the very best of men, the cream of the crop, with man, it is impossible to enter God's kingdom. In fact, the very things that men value actually make it more difficult to enter the kingdom because if you have health, money, power, success, fame, whatever, then why do you need to be saved? You have everything the world says that you need. And the rich, like this young man, and all people have to be shown the futility of man's best, the emptiness of man's best efforts in terms of God's kingdom. You only get into God's kingdom through God's power to save you. 
With man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Another instance in the Bible where all doesn't mean all. With God, it's not possible for all things. Like, he's not going to give me wings so I can fly like a bird. So it's not saying all things, like whatever you dream up is possible with God. No, it's salvation is possible in terms of people. God can save anyone, although God doesn't save everyone. His power is enough even to save the rich. Sadly, this man did not discover that power. The disciples had, and so now they're confronted with a dilemma. This man was offered salvation if he sold all he had and gave to the poor and followed Jesus. He refused. Jesus said it's impossible for the rich to be saved apart from God's power. So then what is the point of sacrificing and leaving behind earthly treasure to follow Jesus? This is what Peter is wondering, and the disciples are wondering. Picking up in verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we left everything and followed you. We, we did what he didn't do. What's the point of that? And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There's no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The disciples did what the rich man was unwilling to do for what? Jesus reveals for the purpose of greater treasure. No one sacrifices anything who does not receive from the Lord a hundred times as much in return. And notice the items he refers to, families, homes, fields, jobs, and food. These are the, the most basic relationships and important aspects to our lives. The men, Peter and the disciples, literally had done that. They had walked away from careers, relieving our fishing nets, relieving our boats, leaving our tax collecting booth, where it's very lucrative. They left all of that to follow Jesus when Jesus said, come follow me. Some of them even had to leave their family for seasons at a time. It wasn't that they abandoned their family, so don't get this idea that they were like, see you later, wife and kids, we're out. Most of these guys, they believe, were single anyway. But even for Peter, who had a wife and a child, Peter's home, if you remember, was kind of the home base of Jesus and his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. So Peter would leave his wife for a season, go do ministry, and come back and see her. But in the end, in the end, these men ended up giving their life. All 11 of these men, not counting Judas, would die a martyr's death. So in the end, they would pay the ultimate price for following Jesus. Suffer the persecution. And Jesus tells them, you will get back now and in eternal life a hundred times as much as you sacrificed. Jesus gives back in abundance more than you could ask or imagine. Like he's not saying, get out your calculator and you gave this, so calculate a hundred times more than that and that's what you get. It's not, it's the idea of abundance, overflowing abundance. Whatever you give up, I'm going to overwhelm you with my abundant grace and generosity. Now, it doesn't mean that that we become healthy and wealthy and prosperous. This is not a promise that your bank account is going to multiply by 100 if you begin to give and sacrifice for the gospel. It doesn't mean that your homes are going to multiply by 100 or your family. You may not want your family to multiply by 100, right? You've got to feed all those people. It doesn't mean like literally that's going to happen in, in the term of personal possessions and wealth. But the picture is multiplied as in the kingdom of God, multiplied as in the family of God. Multiplied as in the people of God helping each other walk through life. Like for instance, these men inherited each other as a, as a family. They helped establish the church. 
And the church became this place where it was said in Acts 4, 32-35, The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said they had any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. This is God's economy. And some of you know, some of you have relationships with people throughout the world where the only foundation for that relationship is Jesus Christ. That's it. We don't have the same last name. We didn't grow up in the same hometown. We didn't have to go to the same school. But there are people around the world that I can say, that's my brother in Christ. That's my sister in Christ. And if I travel to those cities, I can call them up and say, can I come stay with you? We're going to be in town for a little while. And they unwaveringly would say, yes. Are you bringing all your family? Don't know how much space I have. This is God's economy. Where the world says the rich and powerful and healthy rule are first, as it says in verse 31, in God's economy, being rich, young, healthy, wealthy, powerful doesn't help you one single bit. There's no value in and of itself. The world devalues the humble, the childlike, those who totally trust God and are 100% dependent on Him. But in God's economy, they are the ones through whom the kingdom is built, in whom the kingdom spreads. They are first in God's economy while being last in the economy of our world. So let's walk back through these scenes and make some personal and prayerfully, I hope, practical applications. The gospel first exposes your idols and will reorient your life. The gospel exposes your idols and will reorient your life. The rich young ruler ultimately loved his possessions more than God and chose to continue to worship those and not Jesus. Jesus offered him the opportunity to give those treasures up and have him. He would replace those treasures, but he couldn't see it or believe it, and so went away in sorrow and despair. Now think about this. He was healthy, wealthy, young, powerful, morally upright. He even had the affection of Jesus, and as far as we know, he is spending eternity separated from him. He thought, as many think today, that he was a pretty good guy. There's maybe just one thing missing. So let me ask this guy. He's got a lot of reputation and respect around. Let me ask him, what do you think I'm missing to get eternal life? And Jesus shocks him by not being an addition to his already good life, but by blowing up his understanding of the good and morality that he thought he had. And helping him see, you're not even close. Many in our culture, and maybe some in here, think of themselves as pretty good people. Maybe we occasionally sin, but mostly we don't hurt others, at least not much. And if we do, and I'm aware of it, I'll apologize. We're pretty good people, and maybe at some point in my life I need to add a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of religion to seal the deal and make me ready for heaven. But I don't really need to change much. Because I'm already pretty good. So I'm pretty much the same person. I just need a little bit of Jesus. But in this rich young ruler, we see just how radical the gospel changes us. And how if we truly have Jesus, he's not moving in where it's comfortable and convenient. The king of the universe doesn't move in to sleep on the couch. He moves in and takes over. Reorients your entire life totally changes you from the inside 
out. And if that hasn't ex- happened to you, if you haven't experienced that, he might not have moved in. He might still be on the outside looking in. Right? This is what Jesus meant when he had a meeting one night with another good man, a good Jewish man by the name of Nicodemus. And he told Nicodemus in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This blew Nicodemus' mind. What do you mean? Me as a Jew? I can't see the kingdom of God? We are God's people. Have been for thousands of years. And Jesus said, your physical birth, your last name, your Jewish ethnicity is not enough. You have to be born again. You need a new birth. You need a new life born from above. Unless a man receives a new birth, a birth from above, his first birth is not enough. Literally, we have to become a new person. And maybe you're sitting here this morning, the Spirit is speaking to you and helping you see right now that this has never happened in your life. You've been a pretty good person. You've added Jesus to your life, but you're still just religious because you only let Jesus in where it's convenient and comfortable. He's never come in and taken over and reoriented your life. And one way you know this hasn't happened is by examining the idols of your heart. Who or what do you tend to worship other than Jesus? Everybody worships doesn't matter who they are from whatever country, region, the deepest, darkest jungles, the the most affluent societies, the most third world country. It doesn't matter. Everybody worships. And the glory of the gospel is Jesus reveals to us who we were created to worship. Not stuff, not possessions, not other people. We were made to worship the God who made us and loves us and has created us to know him and love him and worship him. Jesus says, I am he. I am him. And Jesus came and lived the perfect righteous life that we fell at. And he died the sacrificial atoning death that we deserve to die. And then rose from the dead proving that everything he said and did was true. And through Jesus we have a way back to the God who made us to know him and worship him. But everybody in this room struggles with idols. Everybody in this room struggles to worship something or someone More than Jesus. It might be money, like this man. Which can be your idol, regardless of your income bracket. Idolatry of money is not something that only rich people do. Uh, Tim Keller put it like this. uh, The the wealthy, when they uh, worship money, they're usually given to pride and arrogance and self-reliance and a superficial life. Just flitting around from hobby to hobby and toy to toy. The middle class, when they worship money, they become workaholics. The poor, when they worship money, they become consumerists. As soon as they get it, they spend it. They never think about the future because they they never think it's going to be there. If money is your idol, it consumes you because you're either envious of those who have it or you're consumed with getting more of it or getting enough of it. It dominates your thoughts and your emotions. Now, money by itself is not evil. Being rich by itself is not a vice and being poor is a virtue. The Bible doesn't teach that. It's our attitude toward money. Do we love it? Does it control us? Do we base our relationships with other people on money? How much they have or don't have. You want to know how divisive money is. We've said this before. We have a greater opportunity of being ethnically diverse in our church, in the American Bible Belt South, than we do of being economically diverse. It's easier to have a group of people in the same uh, financial strata than it is to have a a group of people in different economic situations. It's just a fact of life. 
Money can divide unless we worship Jesus. Now, if we worship Jesus, then we realize that all that we have, he gave us. And all that we have, we don't even own, he owns it. And so whatever the boss says, whatever the king says, we, we do it. If he wants us to spend it, we spend it. If he wants us to save it, we save it. If he wants us to give it away, we give it away. Whatever we need, he's going to provide to accomplish his will and purposes. And so we're set free from worshiping money and letting money own us. We can just give it away and spend it and save it as the boss dictates. It's his. Right? No matter what bill you get in the mail, your Father in Heaven is never freaking out. He's never worried. I got this. You're my child. I'm going to take care of you. Because Jesus is the boss, not money. Now, when Jesus tells us, man, to sell everything and give to the poor, Jesus is not making a command that's a requirement for all believers. He's dealing with this man's besetting sin, this man's ongoing idolatry, his ongoing worship problem. And it might be the same problem for you. It could be any number of other idols. For sure, money in, in, in some way is a struggle for probably everybody in this room. It's probably top three on everybody's list, to struggle to worship money, to care too much about money. Scott Thomas, an author, grouped all of our idols into four groups. Power idols, approval idols, security idols, comfort idols. If you worship power, you want to control anything, or rather everything and everyone. If you worship approval, you want everyone to think much of you and like everything you post on social media. If you worship security, then you want to be safe and everyone you love to be safe and secure and the future to be safe and secure. If you worship comfort, then you just want to have fun, indulge every desire of your flesh, jump from an adrenaline rush to adrenaline rush and feed every appetite that you have until you're happy. Every single person in this room struggles with idols from one of those four categories or if you're like me, all four categories. See the idolatry in your heart, in your flesh, even if you're a believer. And when you see the true nature of your sinfulness, when you realize you're not a pretty good person who just needs to sprinkle a little Jesus in your life, you see that you are a sinner who only deserves hell, then you begin to see how lost you are and how beautiful Jesus is. Because he's looking at you Loving you in the same way he loved that man. And offering himself to you if you would come. Look to Jesus because he alone, secondly, has the power to save. The gospel of Jesus Christ alone has the power to save sinners. Incredible statement by Jesus about salvation in verse 27. With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. One of the key truths that provide evidence that the Spirit of God is dealing with you and that you're born again, becoming a new person, is you're grasping the total dependence that we have on God to save us, that we bring nothing to the table to earn or merit or empower salvation. We bring nothing to the table except our spiritual bankruptcy, except our spiritual nothingness. Our pleas for mercy and salvation... The rich young ruler brought to his list of accomplishments and he wanted Jesus to verify, yeah, you're on the right track, you're a good guy, just do this and you're good. But in salvation, we realize that our accomplishments add up to nothing in terms of salvation. This is the posture of a child, as Kendrick walked us through last week. Children bring nothing to the table. They come in the world with nothing. I got older kids and they add, well, I don't want to say that. They add a lot. Actually working and earning some money, but... 
We don't put it in the family pot. They kind of keep it themselves. But young kids, this is the first beatitude, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, spiritual poverty, spiritual nothingness. Religion is a work of man, and it's impossible to be saved by Jesus through religion. It's only possible to be saved by Jesus through the gospel. Religion is, this is what I've done. Now, God, you save me. Verify I'm a good person. The gospel is, this is what God has done. God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Religion is doing. The gospel is done. It's all been done. Jesus has done everything. Believe in him. Religion, and by the way, all religions of the world outside of Christianity and perverted Christianity, religion is man working for God to earn God's favor. The gospel is God working for us to save us and bring us in. Religion is taking credit for my works. The gospel is falling on our face, recognizing that all that I can do that is good is by his grace for his glory. Summed up in one of my favorite quotes by John Bunyan, wrote Pilgrim's Progress, great classical Christian work, you need to read it. Bunyan said, Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Greater news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. So this morning, if the Spirit of God is speaking and opening your eyes and ears, and for the beginning, maybe the first time in your life, you're seeing the beauty of Jesus in the gospel. You're coming alive as you're repenting of sin. Don't immediately go to, okay, what do I need to do so God will love me to get salvation? What do I need to do? Unlike the rich young ruler, confess you are a sinner and you need a Savior. Fall on His mercy and grace. Totally dependent on Him. Repent of your sins. Your sins of loving and worshiping anyone and anything else more than God. Your sins of trusting and believing in your good works or your goodness to be enough to earn God's favor and salvation. Turn from those sins and turn to Jesus and fall on Him. He's done everything necessary for salvation. Place all of your hope for forgiveness, all of your hope for eternity, all of your hope for for cleansing and, and redemption and righteousness all of your hope for right standing before the God who created you, all of your hope for new life, place it all on Jesus. He is the only one who can bear the weight of that. He is the only one who can take that and give it back to you and fully satisfy you. That's impossible. Are you kidding me? Just repent and believe in Jesus and I'm going to be forgiven and have eternal life and have Jesus come live inside of me and make me a new person. Like surely it's got to be harder than that. It does seem impossible with man, but all things are possible with God. But I have more questions. I need, I need to understand more. I'm struggling with grasping all of this. That's fine. We've actually structured our church for that. For you to ask questions. And there's a lot of things we don't do that normal churches do because we want to have a life that's freed up to have time to be with people. We only meet in this building one time a week. So we can be in our homes and be in the community and be in restaurants, eating lunches and breakfasts and dinners so that we can talk about Jesus and answer questions and help you walk through the struggle. Because it's perfectly normal to have questions and try to figure this out. We want to invite you into our life and walk with you through the struggle. 
and answer your questions. Some of your questions could be legit, but understand this. There's answers to all your questions, I can promise you. You're not going to have a question that there's not already an answer out there. Okay? But understand this. Even if your questions are legit, once you get all the answers, you're still going to get to a place where you've got to believe. You're not going to know everything. God does not not only not reveal everything about himself, but even what he has revealed, we still struggle to understand. If we understood it all, we would be God. There's always a gap between us and God. So have all your questions answered, but you're still going to get to a place where you have to believe. You have to trust like a child. This is all I know, but it's enough to have a relationship with the God who made you. Some of your questions and concerns might be a smokescreen because you know, like the rich young ruler, when the king Jesus moves in, he's taken over and you don't want him to take over. You like life as it is right now. And so see the gospel, thirdly, brings immeasurable treasure into your life flowing from Jesus Christ. The gospel brings immeasurable treasure from Jesus. We see in this last part of the story, the disciples left everything to follow Jesus. They sacrificed everything to follow him. So the point is, Jesus promises them Whatever you've given up by persecution or by choice, you will get back a hundredfold. Now, I pointed out in some ways this is a field in the body of Christ, the church. And so it might be family you've been separated from because of your allegiance to Christ. So I say, welcome to the family of God. Look around the room. You've got brothers and sisters. We're going to be hanging out forever. All right? Get used to each other. And there's many more in the city that we're going to find who need to come into the family. Which is why we invest heavily in our relationships. We don't just get mad and quit and go in another direction because we're going to be together forever. We better work it out. So if you've lost family because of the gospel, welcome to the family of God. We will do whatever we can to serve you, love you. If you lose your job, we're going to chip in and help out whatever ways we can um, to help you walk through life. And... And see that whatever you give up will be repaid. But it's, it's, it's not an investment strategy. Man, it's a new investment strategy. Invest this, I get a hundredfold back. Like that's no-brainer, guaranteed to work. That's not what Jesus is saying. You don't, you don't give up things to get from him. But as he calls you to sacrifice, whatever you have to sacrifice, whatever you lose because of persecution, he will return in abundance. And so sometimes that happens. We have to sacrifice things. But all the time, we have to be willing to sacrifice. Because our allegiance and devotion is first and foremost to Jesus. He is our ultimate treasure. He alone is worthy of our heart's devotion. In fact, it's only when Christ captivates your heart do you become the husband, the wife, the father, the mother, the employee, the employer, the citizen, the friend, the brother, the sister, the manager of money, only when Christ captivates your heart do you truly understand how to live all those, those roles out and experience the fullness of Christ in those areas of life. And at any time, if your love and devotion for anything or anyone is more than Christ, and it happens to every one of us, will, will you love the trappings of Christmas more than the Christ of Christmas? Like we're all walking through that right now. Pour fudge down our pie hole because it's Christmas. Eggnog, whatever. Do you, do you love all of that? Giving gifts, getting gifts more than you love Jesus. If anything, 
in your heart you love more than Jesus, if anything hinders our ability to follow Jesus, then that is idolatry and it's got to be dealt with through sin, repentance and sin and reorienting your mind and your heart to Jesus. doesn't mean every time you've got to sell everything, but in your heart you have to give it away to make Christ the king of your life. And if you lose them, as Jesus adds, with persecutions... If they're taken away by forces beyond your control, as was happening to the original audience in the Gospel of Mark in Rome, Christians undergoing persecution by Nero, if that happens, you'll get back a hundred times as much. And the promise to these disciples, to the persecuted believers who read this first in Rome, to us today is this. It's not as much about what you give up when you consider what you get. Right? Like we have four kids. Most of you know that. And I asked Jennifer this week, when you look at our four kids, do you ever think about the pain of pregnancy and burying those kids into the world, childbirth? Do you ever think about that? And her immediate response was, never. I didn't set her up and tell her, well, I'm looking for a sermon illustration, so you need to say this. It's just never. And I, that's how I felt. Like when I look at our kids, I don't think about that. Or in the case of Timothy, the pains and sacrifices of adoption. I don't think about that. You think about this, these amazing gifts of God's grace in our life. And, and there's nothing that they could do to make you want to give them back or go back and not have them or start over. Nothing. They, because of this immeasurable joy and satisfaction that they bring. And that's just kids who there are days where you're like, eh, maybe they could go live with somebody else. How much more with Jesus? How much more satisfying is Jesus? You never regret following Jesus. You never regret the, the joy that he brings in your life. Any parent would tell you that. Any believer should be able to say that. We give up homes, families, jobs, careers. It's all his. He owns it all. He tells us to use it all. And sometimes, even in persecutions, we do lose it. But in return, we get the family of God. It multiplies us exponentially. Most of all, we get Jesus. So yes, most of this comes through the body of Christ, but, but don't lose sight of the fact that it's Christ that we get and how satisfying he is. John Piper puts it like this. Surely what he means is that he himself makes up for every loss. If you give up your mother's nearby affection and concern, you give back a hundred times the affection and concern from the ever-present Christ. If you give up the warm comradeship of a brother, you give back a hundred times the warm comradeship of Christ. If you give up, give up the sense of at-homeness you had in your house, you give back a hundred times the comfort and security of knowing that your Lord owns every house and land and stream and tree on earth. Isn't that what Jesus is saying to prospective missionaries? Just this. I promise to work for you and be for you so much that you will not be able to speak of having sacrificed anything. That's the way Hudson Taylor took it because at the end of his 50 years of missionary labor in China, he said, I never made a sacrifice. Jesus is that satisfying. He is that fulfilling. And he loves you enough to expose your idols, to help you to see that he alone is the power of salvation and the gospel. And that when you get him, you get everything. You get everything. And if that's not you this morning, know that because Jesus is alive and still working, today can be your day of salvation. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for your truth, for Jesus.
that you would meet us here on this day and speak words of grace and truth into our lives. And however it hits every single heart and soul in this room, we know that you are working out your purposes, your will in us. And so empower that Holy Spirit. Make it, make it happen today. Call us to repentance and faith in Jesus. Call us to believe in Jesus again. Maybe for some, call them to salvation. Genuine, true, inheriting the eternal life. Jesus moving in and taking over salvation today. And we'll give you the glory and the honor for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. And so you can do that in a few minutes when we're having this time of prayer and reflection. You can come see me. You can come see Kendrick. Come see the person. Talk to the person that you came with. Um, Talk to us around the table in a little while when we go eat a meal. We'll spend the afternoon with you to help you walk through however the Spirit of God has spoken to you today. But then after a time of reflection, we want to share in this meal. And so come and receive the bread and dip it in the cup as you repent of sin and believe in Jesus again. It's available to all repentant believers of Jesus Christ to come and share in this meal after a time of prayer.